0: Welcome to Study Show, where we talk about data, how it's used and misused, and why that matters. My name is Rahman, and I'm here with my cousin Imran. Imran's a writer and filmmaker interested in how media representations, or lack thereof, impact our daily lives. His writing on gender, race, and the media has appeared in places like The Atlantic, Salon, and The Establishment, and he previously helped start a nonprofit organization called The Representation Project. He's also the writer and director of two short films, and once gave a TED talk entitled "How Hollywood Can Tell Better Love Stories."
1: Thanks, Ruman. Uh, I'm so excited that we're doing this, and uh, it was actually a TEDx talk. I should clarify so that no one thinks I'm that cool. But uh, <laughs> so, Ruman, uh, Ruman's passion lies at the intersection of artificial intelligence, data science, and humanity. She comes to data science from a quantitative social science background holds two undergraduate degrees from MIT, and a master's in quantitative methods of the social sciences from Columbia University. She's also near completion of her political science PhD from the University of California, San Diego, where she focused on quantitative methods urban American politics, and applied political theory.
0: So the intent of the show is to talk about science and studies and how we we use them in our day-to-day understanding of the world around us, uh, use or misuse. So what are scientists talking about? What are their findings? How do we translate these findings into what we do every day? And how can it be misunderstood? So part of it is to help People understand scientific findings and better draw conclusions from them. Before we get started, I wanted to thank my friend, Dr. Laura Skelly, who has her PhD in integrative neuroscience from the University of Chicago Department of Psychology. She was absolutely vital in helping me understand uh, the work behind the study, but also the context um, and the literature that surrounds it.
1: Like our intro says, you know, we talk about data, how it's used, misused, and why that matters. So today, we're talking about this article that you found, uh, Ruman, that you sent to me in the LA Times. The title of the op-ed is The Futility of Gender-Neutral Parenting. And uh, the thesis or kind of the you know gist of her argument is that gender-neutral parenting isn't that great or it doesn't really have the benefits that people think it does. So today we're going to talk about what her research is, what she's basing that point on, the research she's basing it on and uh why that might not be a great idea or why her like assumptions or kind of conclusions are a bit of a leap to take from that. And for me the big questions are always whenever people talk about gender neutral parenting or question it or anything about this idea it's you know how do you how are you defining gender how are you defining sex you know uh, when you say, you know, in the article, she talks a lot about girls' toys, boys' toys, uh, women, men, and I think, uh, you know, there's already an assumption there that I would question. You know, what, what, where you're, where are you coming from? Um, why do you, we believe that there are biological sexes? What, what is the implications of that? And then, you know, I could, we could go into all that, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on uh, when you read the article and, and how it spoke to you.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think in a lot of these studies, they just focus on biological sex. And I think it's worth a conversation on how problematic that might be to only, uh, to focus on building so much, um, so many scientific conclusions and also assumptions based on, something like biological sex, and we can talk about how that's really problematic. Uh, So yeah, Imran, as you mentioned, my focus is on the science um, as a scientist. So I like to look at studies, how they're structured, the assumptions they're making, but also the dangerous slippery slope. Um, And the, you know, spoiler alert, like my, the point of my thesis here is that Just because we are saying that brains may be different, I don't think necessitates the title of this op-ed, which is the futility of gender-neutral parenting. I don't think that any of these studies at the end of the day point that gender-neutral parenting is futile. Um, She talks a lot about these studies that are about brains and how brains are different, and we'll talk a little bit about what happens when you actually read the study and what the scientists who did the study say. And then from that makes this leap in the last few paragraphs where she talks very anecdotally. And as a scientist, I always have a problem with anecdotes. You know, I know people who said this. That's really great because I may know people who said the opposite. That doesn't mean either one of us is necessarily right. Um... And, you know, at the very bottom, the very last line is that acknowledging inherent sex differences isn't harmful or sexist. Differences don't necessitate one sex being better than the other. Thank you, Deborah. I do appreciate that. Slapping at the bottom of your article, you know, not great because everyone is going to read your giant, bold, you know, highlighted part that said, quote, an immense body of neuroimaging research has shown brain differences in the sexes. So... Science has really become a giant game of telephone. Uh, while I think it's really great that mainstream media um, and the average person know more about what scientists talk about, we have to be super cognizant that it really is a giant game of telephone and that the results we come out with can easily, easily be misinterpreted and, you know, meant, uh, and applied to something it was never intended for. And to be honest, I think this is a good example. I, I think it points to some studies that say, hey, there might be differences in brains, and from it somehow arrives at the fact, the quote-unquote fact, or the hypothesis
1: that gender-neutral parenting is pointless. Even this idea that you can, you know, what how we define what gender-neutral parenting is and whether or not it's even possible, I think is is something worth thinking about in terms of, like, we live in a world that is so gendered, that is, you know, and I know that any parent that I've ever talked to about this concept is usually, you know, very aware of, like, even when you're trying to do something like be as neutral as possible, there is the reality that the world in which we live in, where Donald Trump is on TV and president and, you know, and all all that, all the stuff that, that we see every day in the media you know, that stuff is going to reach us as children and our children one way or another. You know, we walk down the street, we see ads, we uh, talk to other kids whose parents raise them differently. Um, and so these are all factors for me in, in how we are even starting to define, you know, whether or not someone's attempts are successful or not. And on top of that, the other categories of, you know, how a person identifies what community communities they live in you know uh, you know education all that stuff seems to me to to be part of uh, how they how we approach gender you know because for instance i have friends who would say that they're gender neutral parents but their ideas of what is gendered are different than mine or are not as for instance, radical as some of my other friends, you know? So to me, those are all really important uh, to discuss in an an op-ed like this where you just kind of throw it all out. Because most people aren't doing gender-neutral parenting to eliminate gender um, 100% from their kids' lives, you know? The the thing that the article doesn't really contend with is what is the harm in gendered... uh, Toys, for instance, you know, like why would someone even choose to do something gender neutral? It's not just because you're you're putting people into boxes, but it's the fact that those those toys which we call girls' toys are often le- less about, you know, for instance, exploring the world around them than those toys which we or those activities which we associate with boys. You know, boys are often taught to dominate their surroundings. You know and those are the areas where there's harm in in not challenging the norm because and again to me it seems like most parents are trying to challenge the norm rather than get to a zero sum or like a place where there's no gender because that's not really possible in our world and then the last thing I'll just say about that is again to go back you know to this idea of you know, sex itself, biological sex, and and how we define what a woman is, you know, it's in and of itself very exclusive. And there's a lot here that seemed like it was being left out, in my opinion.
0: So maybe that's a good place to start. Um, let's talk about this difference. So the scientists who did these studies, when they talk about gender, they talk about biological gender. However, the application of this study when we're talking about gender neutral parenting is not necessarily about biological gender, right? It is about your social gender, I guess, which is a good way to put it, or your your psychological gender, right? So literally not whether your genitalia is X or Y, but whether the way you quote unquote make in society is male or female. So that, that, as you point out, that's a problem.
1: Yeah. And just to clarify, you're you're saying biological sex, right? Or not, bio- yeah. You're right, yes. Okay, so, um, uh, yeah, you know, you, oh, Judith Butler is just is one of um, many people who have thought about this. But one of the big points that she just makes that I think is really relevant is that anytime you identify a person as the category of woman or man, you're not just, there is no inherent meaning to that word independent from gender in our world, you know, from like the minute you say woman and you call someone a woman, you've already, you know, put a gender meaning on that person's life. And so that's why it's so tricky to even use words like man or woman, you know, in, in, in such, uh, especially in ways that where we don't acknowledge this, you know, because, uh, you know, as basically Judith Butler says, is you can't say woman without prescribing some unspoken normative requirement. You know, obviously I'm not a, a scientist in this way, but for me, that would be something that would be very important to start from, you know, considering. But I wonder, you know, as someone who does do uh, research, Ruman, like how would that be Accounted for when I know that there's such a history of science and medical practice where there's just there is just the assumption of biological sex, and even more than that, there's long been the, just the assumption that biological sex does just mean gender. You know, so yeah,
0: I mean, I, one problem sometimes in in academia and science in general is things tend to be very siloed. I'm sure there's. There are people out there who do excellent studies of these kinds of things, but it doesn't end up translating over into other related fields. Um, I think that's part of the intent of using babies is that presumably they have not been socialized. Uh, however, I would refute that, right? So, you know, unless they are these scientists are raising babies in boxes, uh, these children have already been exposed to things, right, from the day they were born. They were, you know, swaddled in a pink blanket or a blue blanket, right? They were given keys to play with or a tiny stuffed doll to play with, right? Um, even at such a young age, they start at nine months in the study, um, they've already been socialized. They're already given things or even on a very basic level, rewarded for certain actions, right? And more of that rewarding happens later for explicit actions, and they're probably better able to understand um, these actions. But I think this is where you know Judith Butler's work ties in very well, and it's important to understand what the difference is between... You know, we can't just say, hand wave and say, okay, um, biological sex is the same as gender done and done, right? Especially because we are using this to talk about gendered toys, which is more of a social construct than a scientific construct. So, you know, that's exactly her point, as you mentioned, is that translation, we just assume that sex is the same as gender, um, and that's the leap we're making. But um, I think it's also worth noting that there's... So in... One thing they don't mention, or she doesn't mention in the op-ed, uh, so I was reading... I mean, this is just in the abstract, Right. What I found, this, I'm just going to read something out of the abstract from the article. It says, okay, stereotypical toy preferences were found for boys and girls in each of the age groups, demonstrating that sex differences in toy preference appear early in development. Fine, that supports what she said. Here's what I found interesting. Both boys and girls showed a trend for an increasing preferences with age for toys stereotyped for boys. And here's where it's really important that we separate sex and like socialization into what gender is what so that that line right fine when people when they're infants they like you know uh i think it's like a pot and a ball first of all which sound like the most uninteresting toys well the pot sounds like a super there's more potential of things you can do with the ball than you can do with the pot right uh you know throw it bounce it whatever um i guess pots you can slam on things anyway but what was interesting is that when they both got older, they showed an increasing preference for boy toys. So what does that mean? Right. And, and you can come up with both, uh, you can come with all sorts of hypotheses. Like I want that explored. Right. So what is it about boy toys? We're at the age of, I think the oldest was third, the oldest group was 24 to 32 months. So we're at about two years old here. Two years is, is, that's, you know, that is a, an individual aware of their surroundings, like watching television and cartoons, picking up cues, right? Going to the store with their parents, um, you know, understanding punishment and reward.
1: And you're t- and the things you just read are from the ac- actual study which this woman op-ed is based on, right? Or one of right. them, one of those studies, yeah. I also think about, it's not just, like, earlier I was, I was talking about how, like, the world around us is, is not ungendered, you know, or gender neutral, but either, neither are parents, like very few, very few kids, if any, are being raised by parents through themselves were also raised to be even in pursuit of gender neutral, you know? And so if we take that into account, it's like, if you're a, you're a baby and, and you're to two parents, um, and again, parents themselves, I wonder if in here they they uh controlled for parents who of, of the same sex or parents of you know different sex. So but my point is that, you know, even if you're raising a, a, a baby in a as much as you can a gender neutral environment, you yourself bring something to the table, right? And you yourself are, are coming out from coming into that room from a world where you were just the whole day put all these messages in front of you about how you're supposed to act
0: yeah I mean a better construct for this study would actually to take uh households in which children were raised gender neutral and see what their toy preferences were right because that would be the way to erase impact of being raised in a gender and To do that, you'd have to do all these things like define what a gender-neutral household is, make sure, just because somebody says they're raising their child gender-neutral doesn't mean they actually are, right? They may have subconscious things that they do, right, and that not even know, right? Buy blue balls instead of pink ones, right? Um, Things like that. So maybe, you know, so yeah, you'd have to define what a gender-neutral household is, find households that uh, uh, adhere to these rules, and then do the study on their children. That to me would be a more sound scientific study, right? Because you've now done your best to account for um, the gendering that happens, uh, you know, day in and day out from the the day you're born. And even then it's never gonna be perfect, right? Because you'll have relatives, you'll have grandparents, right? Friends who come over and I get that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, social scientists, I totally understand how horribly messy it is to try to do these things, but you can attempt to account for these things. Um, another thing I will point out is that the N or the number of babies in each study is very small. So we have, they have about 101 boys and girls and they're divided into three groups. So roughly 30, actually there's the most number of youngest nine to 17 months, about 40 of them, 18 to 23 months, 29 of them and 24 to 32 months. There's 32 of them. So, you know, like roughly 30 ish children in each group. I am, you know, again, this is not my field of study, so I don't, you know, I I tend to prefer N's that are a lot higher, but I'm a political scientist. We can get N's that are a lot higher. We don't do laboratory studies as much. I would find it very difficult to make broad sweeping generalizations about what toys parents should buy for their children uh, for all of humanity (laughs) based on an N of 30 babies in one group
1: so well and I think that really gets to the heart of how you know part of why we wanted to talk about this stuff even do this podcast it's because there's there's a way to talk about a study like this that would be a little bit more responsible and presented as here is a study here are possible things you could say um, from this study keeping in mind that it is one study and that its end is is this low you know but that's not often how folks in the media or those who get platforms to talk at places like the los angeles times or even you know or wherever they don't often talk about it in that way we talk about it with such certainty and such like you know uh dismissal of alternative possibilities that then you give people the like you're basically pushing people to then in their own lives, take these findings and, and say them as if they're fact. but when we go back and look at the actual study, we, the study didn't say it was fact, you know and yeah. so to present the, this as fact is where it becomes really harmful because then we go, go down the road of literally those like toy companies off are often using science to back up, quote unquote, science to back up their insistence on gendering things. So, you know, I just feel like that's really kind of an example of, of this article is a really good example of how it's just not always responsibly reported in the media and, and, these studies are misused.
0: Right. Absolutely. Um, Which is why I always find it fun to click on the links and actually read the thing the scientists said, because the scientists almost never say the things the article said. They're always very, uh, as scientists, we are trained to be very circumspect in what we say, and if anything, downplay our findings quite a bit and say, like, you know, you'll hear us using very qualifying words, like, trending towards, implications that, like, rarely do we speak in these absolute certainties. Here is my conclusion for all of humanity. You know, we don't tend to talk like that. Um, and if anything, we preface we preface everything we say with this extensive literature review, right? I mean, even their abstract starts with, many studies have found that a majority of boys and girls prefer to play with toys that are typed to their own gender, but there is still uncertainty about the age at which, you know, uh, this appears, under what condition. So the qualify, a huge qualifier in the beginning, and again, nowhere in this do they say these specifics. One thing that reporters do sometimes, and, and they do this in this article, is talk about meta studies. Um, you know where a meta study is just a you know conclusions of a lot of different studies, right? Um, sort of implied in the name. So uh, this is where you know Roman got red faced and angry. Um, in this, are uh, in this. Uh, piece, she refers to uh, a meta-analysis of 126 studies that found that men have larger total brain volumes than women. Ruh-roh. this is where I get upset, um, and let me explain why. So, I click on said meta-analysis. Cool, I'm reading what they're, they're they're doing. Frankly, there's a lot of you know terminology for the second half about brain connectivity that I am not familiar with. Um, but this larger brain thing, A, I do not see the connection between larger brain size and again, her hypothesis or her conclusion or whatever about the futility of gender neutral toys. I don't see why that's related, period. Um, and then this also smacks of, you know, social Darwinism, right? So if we talk about, this is where social scientist me comes in, um, We're down a really dangerous road here where we talk about intelligence and brain size. And yes, I understand that at the end of her article, she has her one line about how, you know, oh, just because we say men's and women's brains are different doesn't mean one's better than the other. Wonderful. We also have, you know, you were talking a lot about context and history. We have a huge history of using these things as quote unquote evidence that a particular gender or a particular race was inferior. So... Slapping on one line, at the end of your article, not great. Um, post, you know, because you're making this connection where there is none.
1: Yeah, I would. My question, I was going and, and totally this whole history of using brain size, body differences as proof and evidence of people's lower value or, you know, justification for the mistreatment of people. I think about, you know, Sarah Bartman and, you know, the way that you know, black women were basically treated as, you know, circus uh, exhibits because they were not, you know, medically or scientifically by some thought to be the same as other people. And so, yeah, my question always is, what is the value? What are you trying to improve by saying that there is a difference? You know, like, what is the benefit? I, I appreciate that there could be in studying bodies, if we can say that this body is medically distinct from this other one or this body part, then maybe we can study it in a way that helps people, you know, find, you know, unique cures or whatnot for diseases. But in most cases like this, I don't, in an argument where the, the crux is around toys and, you know, how we parent children and what we tell them, why would it be valuable to to emphasize difference you know and and again you know like there of course people are different you know everybody's different and and we have our own experiences but again it's actually what i find is that these kinds of questions are not actually about difference they're about saying a bunch of people are the same you know and then a bunch of other people are the same and 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 we need that to be true so that we feel like part of that or, or that it, 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 because we assign value to it within ourselves or something like that. And anyway, yeah. So to me, it's like, but, but I'm glad you brought up the history thing because it is a very dangerous thing. It's not just a, a, a little thing to, to say that, you know, so definitively that this brain, that men's brains are bigger and that that means anything. You know, like to right. to bring that into the conversation is right, like The so problem isn't wild.
0: saying <laughs> that they're bigger or they're smaller or this group is from that group. It's as you mentioned, applying some value judgment to that, which we have a, a long history of doing. So, right, you mentioned Sarah Barthman. Um, I think about also um, the vilification of Jews, right, during the Hitler regime. Um, they you know, the whole like Aryan ideal, right? Jews and their quote unquote shifty eyes and their their noses and these things meant something, right? And, you know, clearly uh, by their logic, it meant that Jews were not trustworthy because they had small shifty eyes and you could do a measurement of, you know, nose and the, the differences between, and you can arrive at who is a trustworthy person who is not a trustworthy person. Um, and then, you know, again, during... Uh, peers of Darwin's would say women were not as smart as men because our brains were smaller. So like, and, you know, just, ah, trying not to get angry. Um, But, you know, it's, it's the most basic old, I mean, and it's just so, anybody who has read any of this, the historical context of a lot of these gendered, sexist, racist, pseudoscientific studies, just, you know, Get so upset when a a meta-analysis like this is used in an article talking about uh, gender norms, right? Or, you know, how we should socialize children. Because again, reading the abstract, the scientists are trying to be more responsible in saying that, quote, together, these results suggest candidate regions for investigating the asymmetric effect that sex has on the developing brain and for understanding sex-based neurological and psychiatric conditions. So, what their intent is is not to provide some sort of value judgment, but it's to say if you have, let's say, uh, an autistic boy and an autistic girl, might the differences in the way our brains are wired help them somehow? You know, again, they're not making judgments on you know gender-neutral toys or something like that. They're 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 approaching it in a very scientific, like, how can we help? these children or, you know, these adults who have, um, neurological and psychiatric conditions, which is worlds apart from then arriving at this conclusion of don't bother trying to not give your little girl a princess dress. She's going to want one anyway. Right.
1: I hear it so often in arguments where the argument will often devolve into, well, men and women are just different or the, the argument will often, you know, I heard, um, I, I took issue with even many of the, the messages that were at the women's March, but part of the thing that was happening was that people would, were seeing it as men, like people like Pierce Morgan, who I shouldn't listen to or ever, but you know, we're seeing it. The minute they see women's March, they say that isn't about me because I am a man. And that those people, people over there are women and we're different and anything that helps them couldn't help me or or you know and just stuff like that pierce morgan is a guy who's made this many versions of this argument many times in his career which is that men and women are fundamentally different and that means something and that means something about how we should be treated and what opportunities we should have and that's why these kinds of arguments were. We want to say that so definitively without really being very thoughtful about what we're saying is to me very scary um,
0: and and to illustrate this game of telephone right um, the study that was published about it um, leads to an article in The Daily Mail that goes men really do have bigger brains
1: right exactly it it just seems like in this moment we those people who have access to the research who have the education have been given the privilege of like understanding this stuff and like can read these things and write about them i feel like there's so much more responsibility uh, on those people to to try harder you know and like uh to make it clear for people that Mm -hmm. you know how these things work and uh you know, and of course I, I, I do want to say like, obviously science itself and, and research is, can be biased, you know, and that's why things like meta analysis are often sway people more. Cause it's, it's the implications that bias has been resolved more correctly, but I, I still think about how we live in systems, which are s- themselves so biased. So like, you know, the majority of, of Congress is white men, but so they're, you know, Obviously, that's not the same as a study, but my point being is that, you know, even within science, the scientific community and academia, there there's still should be a recognition of bias. So, like, that's another thing I kept thinking when I read this was, like, did men do all these studies or, like, who – like, what is the history of this research and who was doing that research? And then when people base their research on that history, do they – and I'm sure they do, but do they contend with that bias, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, and this sort of goes back to the, da- I think the dangerous part of it is what we we're talking about with the, the social Darwinism, like a lot of the, the Darwin's peers talking about, you know, all eugenics movements and things like that is they use these to justify their assumptions, right? So they did sort of the opposite of the scientific method, which they're come in saying, well, we know women aren't as smart as men. Well, now we just have to biologically prove it, you know? So they're coming in with these, we know that black People aren't actually people, so now we have to go and prove it, you know. Uh, they're coming in with these assumptions, and then they're trying to prove their assumptions, right? And maybe they may or may not have explicitly thought those, said those things, but that is inherent, because in, they're already coming in assuming there is a difference, right? Um, not even questioning that maybe there wouldn't be a difference. Um, so, then, so agreed, you know, it, and because some of these things like preference are things that are possibly difficult to measure, right? How do we know if a nine-month-old baby prefers thing A over thing B? Is it whether or not they reached for it? Maybe the light fell on it differently. Maybe they just like shiny things. You know, maybe they just like round things, right? Um, Can't really ask the nine-month-old, right? Um, So even if you're measuring a preference for something, operationalizing that and saying that, Girls liked this and boys liked that can also be problematic, and as you mentioned, driven by our base uh, assumptions and our biases that we have sort of inherently within us, right? Um, maybe little girls and little boys act differently. Um, maybe little girls are more gregarious and louder and they're just grabbing all the toys. Maybe little boys are a little, you know, some little boys are a little more timid and, you know, they're not reaching for either toy. And then, you know, the, the, um, person administering, it's like, pick a toy, pick a toy and is un, uh, you know, subconsciously leaning towards the boy's toy. A good parallel I can make is, you know, in, in surveys, um, how your survey administrator speaks, whether or not your survey administrator is male or female, the inflection you put on the question, would Hillary Clinton be a good president? Would Hillary Clinton be a good president? Would Hillary Clinton be a good president? A good president? Those three, the way I said those three questions, will get totally different answers. Um, these things matter when human beings are, are doing other doing things with other human beings, and you know we are scientists, but we're still people.
1: That, that's a really good point because I. I I don't want to quote a study I can't name right now, but i I remember a particular study around uh, the performance of african American boys on standardized tests when based how it would change if they were asked what their race was first or their gender, and then also how it might would change um, there was one study that looked at President Obama's election and how it changed the mention of it. Or for girls, it was like for certain groups of girls, it was like the mention of a a mathematician who was a woman impacts how those girls can do then on the test. Anyways, I mean, it's just obviously I'm doing a bit of what I said we shouldn't do. Just randomly,
0: <laughs> no, but I mean, but but you're right. I mean, it's in, in survey analysis world we call it priming. Um, so, uh, for example, political parties and campaigns will send out surveys, quote-unquote surveys, not really, uh, to try to prove a point. And it'll start off by asking you, you know, um, are you in a happy, committed relationship? Do you love your partner? Do you have children? Uh, then it'll say, uh, do you believe in the death penalty? <laughs> right? Um, do you think murders, you know, people who murder babies, you know, you know what I mean, should be put to death? Uh, so we call it priming. It'll and it may not necessarily be that. Sometimes it actually is that explicit. Um, both parties do it. Yeah, I'm not saying one one side does it more. You know, does it and the other one doesn't. Um, but priming is actually a thing. And when we when we do survey analysis, we if you're doing it responsibly, you pay a lot of attention to how you can be primed to give certain answers. Um, and you know, you gave a really good well, example. Well, and,
1: and and the point here is that the world that we live in is priming us in terms of gender and it's an impossible sort of, uh, thing to avoid, like we've mentioned before. So even those babies, um, I would just always wonder. I mean, uh,
0: unless you're raising a baby in a box, like there's really no way uh, you can. And you and, yourself
1: were raised in a box. <laughs> yeah, and you yourself
0: were raised in the box. Um, but you know, yes, like social science is inherently messy, and we can fall you know—fall down a rabbit hole. But you know, there there is sort of the the responsible things. There are the things you can control and things you can't control, right? Um, and I feel like some of these studies don't even control for the things you can control, right? So the meta-analysis of brains, uh, the studies that they're talking about make no mention of whether or not that they whether or not they controlled for body size. Really easy thing to do, right? Yes, you cannot raise a baby in a box. You cannot raise all these scientists in a box, right? Impossible. But you can do things like, You know, maybe let's try to find, uh, let's try to define what preference is. Let's have a larger N, right? Or let's do the study based on children who were raised in gender-neutral households um, by defining gender-neutral households, explicitly talking about that, recruiting these families and doing the study on that. Because there's, there's such a heavy implication to what they're saying here. Uh, that it's the onus is on the scientist and also on the people reporting on the science to make sure that everything was done properly. the
1: last thing I wanted to say about kind of why this you know is, is so important you were saying about the misuse of words and such and and I'm thinking also back to we were talking about Judith Butler earlier and her you know thoughts on how the minute you name something uh, women or man uh, you've already associated a bunch of things with it and uh, this came up recently uh, during the Women's March when there was a broad assumption being made and and a lot of uh, women pointed this out uh, trans women often but that There's an assumption in the iconography and kind of language that some people were using uh, at the march that women was meant something uh, very definitive about what your body looks like. And we talked about how historically that is not all not just been the case for trans women, but, you know, women of color, you know, there has been a hierarchy of who is more valuable as a woman who is more a woman. You know, and the media presents us an image of this is the most woman woman there is, you know, and it's, you know, a thin white woman's, you know, straight cis woman. And that is the most woman woman there is. And that is based on these conversations which try to so stringently define this difference, this this thing that is for some reason so important to people to say that. This is a man, and this is a woman, and i to me I'm always going to come back to questioning why we want to do that so much, and especially in the context of op eds like this, which don't really def- give us a good reason for wanting to do that, you know, but rather, they seem to be intended to maintain things as they are, to maintain gender norms, and, and to keep things separate and keep people really. Uh, at different levels of power, you know. So it, it it really only to me serves patriarchy and and all these other systems of power when we try to make these statements so definitive and and try to separate people based on their bodies. Awesome. So all right. So I think this is the end of our our show, and I'm so excited that we did it. Yeah. And I'll just say, I always feel like I get smarter just listening to you talk. So. I appreciate that you're here because, as you saw earlier, if you weren't here, I would just randomly cite random studies. And...
0: <laughs> but 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 we all fall into this trap, right? We'll be like, oh, I read this paper, and it like, or but it's not, like we never actually read the study, right? It's really rare. We read uh, someone's article about the study, and and that's why, like I refer to this game of telephone. And that's so vital that we don't, like, we preserve the information that's important at every step of this game of telephone because it is incredibly rare. And honestly, unless you're an academic, you probably don't even have access to half of these articles. Um, You probably don't read the article itself. You probably read someone's interpretation of it, right? Or, you know, so who is that person writing the article? Are they doing it justice? Uh, Are they a reputable source, et cetera, et cetera? But, you know then how do we responsibly use that information in our conclusions? Because there's nothing wrong with making conclusions about how we should do things. That's what science is for. But, you know, what's, what's a good framework and guideline?